James is simply reminding us that an unbridled tongue, that earthly wisdom, when the two are mixed together, what do you have? Quarrels and conflicts. That becomes the spiritual condition of the individual. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl is continuing his study in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. We will see that when God's delights are our own delights, selfish desires begin to turn into Christ-centered delights. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues his lesson on combating worldliness. God's word and God's will always dovetail. They never contradict. So there are some things that are no-brainers because God has said specifically what his will and his plan is. Now, sometimes it's not always clear. Uh, you are headed off to college and you got a full scholarship to a school in Michigan and another in Massachusetts. Both are giving you a full ride. Both are equal distance from your home. Which school should I go to? Both are rated on the same level, both top schools. Well, certainly one component of discovering God's will in these areas that are not expressly defined is a verse like Psalm 37.4. If you're coming to the basic discipleship course, I'm going to give you a hundred passages that every Christian should memorize, and this is on the list. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see that word desires, by the way, in the Greek Old Testament, we call it the Septuagint because Jews read the Old Testament in Greek at one point because they lost their ability to read Hebrew. It's the same word that we just saw for pleasures in James chapter 4. Now, I know some people read a verse like this and they say, you got to be kidding me. You mean to tell me if I delight myself in the Lord, he is going to give, you, give me my desires. But please understand, in the context, God reveals the emphasis is not on my desires, but on my delight. It's structured that way in Hebrew, but even if you didn't know Hebrew, the context draws it out. Look at the verse right before it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Look at verse 5 right after it. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So on either side of verse 4 is this admonition to cultivate faithfulness and to commit your way to the Lord. And when you spend your time delighting yourself in the Lord, then the desires that are in your heart are coming from Him. They are originating from Him. So He puts a strong desire in your heart as to the pathway that you should take. And so the desires are not evil, they are not self-centered, they are not selfish. These are desires that come from God. Every pastor has to do a lot of marriage counseling. It's inevitable in our day. In fact, for many people, the entry level to the church, why do you come to CBC? Our home is in a crisis. Rarely a week goes by when I do not hear that. And you get them in there and you say, well, what's the problem? You know, and some of the things I've heard, you know, I mean, we think these are jokes the way the toothpaste is squeezed or the toilet paper is rolled, but it's not. I've heard them literally in my office. And I begin with, are you delighting yourself in the Lord? Are you personally spending time with the Lord? Because you see, if you're not, 
then those selfish, self-centered desires are going to come to the top. But when God's delights are your delights, when his will becomes your will, when his word becomes your will, selfish desires begin to turn into Christ-centered desires. Now go back to James chapter 4. James 4. We've seen the emphasis here is on quarrels and conflicts from within. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are not in the original. They're added almost a thousand years after the Bible is completed so we could find our way around. But please do not miss the flow of thought. Chapter 3 in verse 1 began with a discussion on the tongue. Then after the tongue beginning in James 3.13, he moved to earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom, which we discovered last time, and now in verse 1, to quarrels and conflicts. James is simply reminding us that an unbridled tongue, that earthly wisdom, when the two are mixed together, what do you have? Quarrels and conflicts. That becomes the spiritual condition of the individual. However, through a hard change, when you have a birth from above, and then you begin to feed on the Word of God on a consistent basis, everything begins to change, and you have more and more harmony in your home and in the church. So the first cause of worldliness is illicit pleasures. Secondly, on your outline, worldliness is rooted in self-centered envy. Worldliness is also rooted in self-centered envy. We read now in verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, the second clause introduces us to envy, which is very, very destructive. And envy and jealousy are evil twins. Jealousy begins with full hands, but it's threatened by the thought of losing something that they possess. Whereas envy starts with empty hands, and it's yearning after something that someone else has. It might be a position, it might be prestige, it might be power, it might be some possession. And since he or she is not able to obtain it, what do they do? They fight and they quarrel. Now, most of you probably have at least one person in your life that just seems to dog you. You can't make them happy. As soon as you slip up even a little bit, instead of them showing you grace, they're all over you like a bad rash. And the problem, sadly, is that their so-called criticism of you is often disguised in a phony spirituality. And if you want to see a classic example... Turn to Numbers chapter 12. Go to the book of Numbers. If you're new to the Bible, the first book most of you know is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then go to Numbers and go to Numbers chapter 12. It's called Bamidar in the Hebrew Bible. They have different titles for their books. They take some of the first words or word that's found in the first verse of the first five books, and that's how they're titled. Remember, uh, book titles aren't inspired any more than chapter and verse divisions. They're there so you could identify the right scroll or where the pastor in our day is asking you to turn to. Now, let me, uh, Bamidar, by the way, means in the wilderness, 
And so this is a book about the people of Israel in the wilderness. Now, in the Greek translation, they call it numbers because there's a lot of counting that takes place through this book. Maybe in the wilderness is better because, oh yeah, I want to read the book that really describes their times of wandering. I go to Numbers, Bamida. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. You have a classic problem of envy. We read, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. So Miriam actually takes the lead. In Hebrew, it's a feminine singular verb. And so in the Young's literal translation, they render it, and Miriam spoke, Aaron also, against Moses. They're underscoring that Miriam is the one who took the initiative in this little envy fight, and we'll see the consequences are going to reflect accordingly. By the way, I should pause here for a moment because there's a lot of nonsense that has been written about what is actually going on here. You're thinking persons. There have basically been four positions about what it is that she is raising. When it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, why? Because of the Cushite woman. Some say that what Moses did was he divorced his wife and he married this Cushite, that Zipporah was out of the picture and he chooses to marry this woman. Number one, that can't be substantiated anywhere in Scripture. Even the Jewish people, some who can be liberal in their approach to Scripture, recognize that that was never the way their Jewish rabbis understood it. Well, some would say, well, Moses didn't divorce Zipporah. He just married a second woman. He was practicing bigamy. Well, certainly under the Old Covenant, there are believers like David who had more than one wife. Uh, he actually practiced polygamy, and he was still considered a believer under the New Covenant. He would not be considered a believer. And that's not to say that you couldn't practice in a monogamous relationship. There are many godly men who only have one wife their whole life. And clearly, I think Moses is in that picture. He underscores in the Torah not only the permanency of marriage, but it's one woman, one man, until death separates them. And so in Exodus chapter 4, we read, So Moses took his wife, not wives, he took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Some say, well, Zipporah died. And so Moses married again. And that would certainly be permissible. Uh, you remember Moses' life, 40, 40, 40, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness again, this time leading the children of Israel towards the land of promise. Some would say, well, you know, he had been married at least 40 years, and now his wife's dead, and he's 80, and he marries again. Well, I would have a problem with that, because remember, this is the man who authors the first five books. And with all the great leaders, whether it's Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or whoever it is, when a wife dies, they record it. They name it. And so it seems pretty forced to me that all of a sudden this woman walks in the scene, this Cushite woman with no explanation, not even a record that this great woman of God's Zipporah had died. 
So it's somewhat forced. Many, including myself, believe that he's describing the same woman. That Zipporah, though she's from the land of Midian, she's also considered a Cushite woman. Let me explain. There are many places in the Bible in which there are two. Like there's two Bethlehems in the Bible, and there's two uh, Caesareas in the Bible, and there's, there's a whole list of things, or two places. And, and some would argue that there's two Cushes, Cush of Ethiopia. Or some would say, well, she's called a Cushite because she would look like someone from Cush of Ethiopia. That's possible. We don't definitively know, but we do know what the Midianites look like that they were a dark-skinned people like the Cushites were, and so you might find that parallel. And you find God making that parallel in two books of the Bible, one Habakkuk and the other is Amos. For instance, in Habakkuk 3.7, there's a Hebrew parallelism here. I saw the tents of Cushion under distress. The ten curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. So here, Cushion is another name for Midian. And so what is he referring to? Skin color. By the way, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 5, he marries a Cushite. And her skin is described as black and beautiful. We have that expression, black is beautiful. Do you believe that, you black people? Someone say amen. Black is beautiful. Amen. We get a few amens. And most white people do too because they're always trying to make their skin darker, right? <laughs> I mean, let's get out there in the sun and make it darker. Uh, well, fourth, Midian here, she's, she's just looking for an excuse. She's looking for an excuse as to why Moses is the big shot and she can't share the same kind of leadership with Aaron. So in essence, she was saying, Moses... Why should you lead us? By the way, he married in the faith because you discover that the people of Midian came from Keturah. Remember, Abraham was married to Sarah. She finally passed away, and he married again, and he had several children. And the children that come from Keturah are called the Midianites. So he married within the faith, just like Jacob wanted Isaac, uh, Abraham wanted Isaac to have a believing wife and so on, and, uh, and, they, and they wanted them to marry within their family. By the family, I mean within certain tribal racial dimensions. Why? Because typically in this day, to marry outside of the family was to marry a raw pagan. And that's where the prohibition is, whether it's in the Old Testament in the New, or in the New Testament. It's not, it has nothing to do with an interracial marriage. It has everything to do with whether you're marrying a believer versus an unbeliever. And so here's Miriam, and no doubt, as I'll show you in a second, she's saying, well, look, you could have married someone who was more of a kosher Jew, a little more direct through Abraham, who looked more like us. But you married this Cushite, this Midianite, who's a whole lot more dark-skinned than we are. So she has this spiritual problem of envy that Moses is in leadership, and now she's drastically looking for a problem and an excuse in which to bring him down. Look at verse 2. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. The problem was theirs. It's not Moses's. Look at verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. By the way, the liberals, the scholars, the, scholars, the critics of the Bible, who are always attacking the Scripture, 
They want to attack Mosaic authorship. Because if you attack Mosaic authorship, then that means Moses didn't write it. They have multiple authors. When Jesus said Moses wrote it, then that's not correct either. Because they say the writer would never have said this about himself. If Moses is writing this book, Moses never would have said he was more humble than any other person on the face of the earth. In reality, just the opposite is true. His declaration and record of his humility is only something that the Spirit of God would have led him to say and to record for us. That would not be a person's natural inclination. And so God has Moses included here. Why? To underscore that envy, that they are accusing, that, that the envy in their heart is not justified, that Moses is not some arrogant leader, but he is a man called of God. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Suddenly, the Lord, it's in all caps, Yahweh, said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out of the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against him, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam. Behold, she was leprous. Listen, to grumble against God's leader, Moses, was to grumble against God, and that's what they were doing. And so while God held Aaron also responsible, because Miriam took the lead, she experienced the brunt of the punishment. She experienced leprosy. What's her complaint? This Cushite you married, this Midianite, she's not a full-blooded Jew. She's one of those dark-skinned people. What does God do? He makes her white as snow. <laughs> I love it. It's almost as if God is saying, you're probably not as white as you think, Miriam. Okay, that's the cause of worldliness. Now back here in James chapter 4, let's also continue with the consequences of worldliness. He lists two consequences that always inflict a worldly believer. First, worldliness results in unasked prayer. It results in unasked prayer. He says here at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Let me start by saying that the more intimate your fellowship with God is, the more you will pray. And the corollary is true. A person out of fellowship, their last thought, instead of their first thought, their last thought is to pray. You know, couples come into my office, they have problems. And I always remind them, look, you don't have any kind of a problem if you know Christ that God can't help you with. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What you need to learn is how God will strengthen you. And one of the first things I, I ask them, I'll say, have you as a couple literally, physically, actually gotten on your knees and, 
and prayed and cried out to God about this problem. I know you've told me you, you've fought about it, you've discussed it with other people, you've discussed it with one another, but have you discussed it together as a couple with God? And 99% of the time, the answer is no. Because you see, worldliness leads to a prayerless life. And when your heart is out of tune, you will not pray. And one of the greatest problems in our day is not unanswered prayer. It is unasked prayer. And it is unasked because the heart is not right with God. Again, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Audrey and I were in a church in North Carolina. We were serving at Duke University. She was ministering to women. I was ministering to men, newly married. And we went to this Sunday night congregational meeting. And I'm telling you, it was a knockdown, drag out fight. It was really sad. And I saw people, I, who are these people? I've been coming here for a year. I've never seen some of these people. Oh, they're members. They show up when there's a congregational meeting. And I couldn't have counted 30 people the Wednesday night before at that prayer meeting. Prayerless is a prayerless life. It's a worldly life. And it creates conflict in the church. So worldliness results in unasked prayer. Secondly, worldliness results in ineffective prayer. It also results in ineffective prayer. You see, James envisions this person saying, now wait a minute, I've prayed with my husband and we are still knocking heads or we've prayed about this decision in our church and we're still filled with fighting and quarrels. And you see, God just isn't answering our prayer. And James would say, you're absolutely right. God did not answer your prayer. In fact, God is not even listening to your prayer because your heart is not right. We say, well, God answers all prayer. Yes, no, or maybe. God doesn't even listen to some prayer the Scripture teaches. We come up with these little trite expressions that many times are half-truths. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You see, some of the requests that were made in the assembly within this local churches that he is writing to the diaspora were legitimate requests. But the reason they were asking for these legitimate requests came from an illegitimate kind of desire. And so he goes on and he reminds us that when a prayer request is made just simply for your own cause, your own desire, and not for the glory of God, God will say these kinds of things. You adulteresses, verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever wishes, the Net Bible says, whoever decides, the New King James says, whoever wants, the Old King James says, whoever will be. Actually, the Greek word is bulama. You say, well, that really blesses me, Pastor. Well, let me explain why it's important. Literally, it reads, whoever therefore is minded is a friend of God. Whoever is minded a friend of the world. Whoever is minded, bulamai means to be minded, to have a perspective. 
And there are some people who are worldly minded. They have a worldly perspective. Now remember, this world system, Ephesians 2 says, is being energized by the prince of the power of the air. Now when we say people are worldly minded, it's critical that we differentiate between the worldly value system that Satan is energizing as the God of this world from the people of this world. And there's a difference. Let me illustrate. Go to Mark's gospel, Matthew, Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. Go to Mark chapter 2 for just a moment. Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, let me set the stage here for you. It really unfolds in three scenes. In Mark chapter 2, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus comes to this man, Levi, who is a tax collector. He's also known as Matthew in the Bible. Many Jews had double names, and this man is Levi or Matthew. We're talking about the same person. And as a tax collector, he was not considered, quote-unquote, one of the beautiful people of the day. They were hated. They were rip-off artists. They were despised. And Jesus comes to Levi, and he says, follow me. And he drops his cash register. He leaves everything, and he follows the Lord Jesus. Then we come to scene 2 in verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, in Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. So here's the Lord Jesus who knew no sin, who did not sin, and in whom was no sin, and he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. It's a beautiful picture. And if you don't find that beautiful, there's something wrong with you. It tells me your heart is a million miles away from the Lord. Now, notice scene three where I want to give us, give the focus. Verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? The point is clear. Since he's eating and drinking with tax collectors, that is sinners, ipso factor, he himself must be a sinner and he cannot be considered a man of God. Verse 17, in hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Please understand a very important principle, and it is that what Jesus was determined where Jesus was. What Jesus was determined where Jesus was. What is Jesus? He's a physician. He's the Savior. Where does a physician spend his time? With sick people. Where does a Savior spend his time? With sinners. Now let me ask you, where do you spend your time? Do you find the lost people of this world with, like they're infectious? Like they've got cooties? Like they're dirty? If that's the way you feel, you're not like Christ. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, in the New Testament, there's a huge difference between separation from sin and separation from sinners. And we live in a day where more and more we do not separate ourselves from sin. We live much like them. A woman not long ago came to join Community Bible Church 
And I said, well, how'd you get here? She said, well, I had some problems in the church I came from. My ears kind of perked up like, are we bringing on another problem person? I said, well, what were the problems? She said, well, you know, I go to these Bible studies and people are drinking. And some of them after the Bible studies, they're sleeping together. And I go to church, and it's just like a rock concert. He's, she said, it's one of these seeker-sensitive churches. And when I would call some of these behaviors into question, they said I was judgmental. And so I came here, and I heard the Word preached, and that God has such thing as absolutes. For Christians, one of the many consequences of worldliness result in a prayerless life when our hearts are out of tune with God. If you enjoy today's message... You can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 009. Remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Tomorrow, we will conclude our message on combating worldliness Join us then as we search the scriptures.